Hello, and welcome to Community Calls, our ongoing effort to keep the community updated with COVID-19 and other health-related issues during the pandemic. I am Dr. Panagis Galiatsatos, an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a physician in pulmonary and critical care. Thank you for joining us. So thank you all for attending another week of the uh, COVID-19 community calls uh, hosted by Kimberly and myself. Uh, they continue to be a source of inspiration uh, greatly. Uh, I say this uh, because uh, without knowing that the community isn't out there, not promoting, not helping us fight the pandemic, uh, I would be going into the intensive care units like I did Wednesday night. Incredibly sad. Um, but I am starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel. Um, clearly using Hopkins as a surrogate to that can sometimes be misleading. We're a massive academic center, so we get a lot of patients from uh, many uh, places of the Mid-Atlantic. But uh, we've all, myself, my nursing colleagues, we are beginning to feel a bit of ease come over us in regards to the hospitalizations and admissions. So we thank you all for that. Please understand, it's not doctors and nurses in real time in the hospital helping these COVID-19 numbers come down. It is you all listening to this weekly uh, call, going out and getting information, being able to disseminate it to your community, promoting health, preventing disease. You all are helping us end this pandemic. So I cannot thank you enough. And the ability for you all to help us, help us uh, get the science out, help us put minds to ease, especially with the vaccines, all of that is highly important. So I cannot thank you all enough. And every week, I'll be thanking you, and so will Kimberly. So with that said, let's dive into the numbers. And after this, I'm going to go over um, a little bit uh, uh, about what I'm seeing in the, our post-COVID-19 clinic. Please keep in mind, the conversations have always been about preventing COVID-19, and that's massively important. And then survival of COVID-19, also important. But there are a lot of friends, family, neighbors who have contracted COVID now are still going through post-COVID-19 complications. And I want to present a little bit of the insight that we are gathering from that clinic. And that's what I'll spend time doing today. Before we turn it over to, yes, another infectious disease doctor. Keep in mind, they're very important during this time. But an amazing one, Dr. Erica Johnson, a colleague of mine, will ask her some insight into the mutations, into the vaccine. And also how she, you know, a question that I'm interested in is, you know, how do you organize a hospital to be prepared for the pandemic? So she'll go over how the next generation of doctors adapted to this in real time. So a lot of great insight and questions coming up. So let's go over where we are at with the numbers. So with regards to COVID-19, globally, we are at 116,380,600 cases with COVID-19-related deaths at 2,584,134, giving us a global mortality rate of 2.2%. Here in the U.S., we have 29,529,082 cases with deaths at 533,671, giving us a mortality rate of 1.8% here in the U.S. And finally, here in the state of Maryland, 385,678 cases with deaths at 7,748, giving us a mortality rate of 2%. And last week, we added a new statistic, the amount of people vaccinated here in the, in the state of Maryland and here in the United States. Because remember, this is a global pandemic, and if we are looking to stop transmission, Getting as many people vaccinated is going to help us. So here in the state of Maryland, how many people have been fully vaccinated? Now, the Johnson & Johnson numbers are not in these numbers at the moment. We'll hopefully have them next week. But these are essentially around Pfizer and Moderna. So fully vaccinated Marylanders, 744,625, meaning 12.3% of Marylanders are fully vaccinated. In the United States as a whole, 62 million 730,000 people have been vaccinated, right? 62,730,000, giving us here in the U.S. a fully vaccinated uh, statistic of 19%. We're moving forward. And keep in mind, last week, 
we're below that. I think we're close to 7%. So we are doing well exponentially, rising and rising to get our population vaccinated and having a sense of an ending to some extent of the pandemic. Now, as I promised earlier, one of the things I want to go over is what we are seeing in our post-COVID-19 clinic. Keep in mind, when patients come to this clinic, we always prepare them with three points that we hope to identify going through this. First, what they're going through and experiencing post-COVID-19, could this be part of what we call the healing process? And what we mean by that is, my favorite analogy to give in in this moment is think of a bone that is broken. When you take the cast off months later, you have to start learning how to walk again and so forth. And that walking comes with a lot of pain as muscles are growing and shifting and so forth. So healing can come with its own symptoms. So that's what we try to identify, especially after the lungs have been ravished or they're going through certain symptoms. Second, could COVID-19 have created a disease, a new disease, or unearthed an old disease? The latter, what I usually mean is some patients, for instance, had asthma, grew out of it as a child, compensated well, and now this virus caused their asthma to come back. For others, it's a whole new diagnosis of asthma, or it is sometimes other lung complications. So we try to figure out if it's a whole, new, if it's a disease, new or old, that has been surfaced from the symptoms you're experiencing. And third, oftentimes we say we don't know. It's a huge thing to say as a scientist and as a physician, and it's very humbling sometimes to the patient because while we may not know, it doesn't mean we quit. It means we go through them with them in this journey to figure it out together. Those are three things we always lay out in our clinic. The majority of the times the symptoms they are experiencing are post-healing. Then a subgroup, it is a new disease, and another larger group, it is we don't know, and we'll try to figure it out together. But what I wanted to raise your attention about is something that I'm hoping my colleague Dan Hale would even confirm, yes, we need to tackle this more and more. And it's the mental health. We brought this up a little bit times before, but I really want to emphasize that over the last two months, Our number one referrals coming from our post-COVID-19 clinic are to our psychology and psychiatry colleagues. Our patients are going through drastic mental health conditions, sometimes as a direct cause from COVID-19. Keep in mind the brain is an organ. That massive inflammation can rock the brain. Sometimes the mood is greatly affected. So some patients are experiencing depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, social isolation for the first time ever. Others are having this as an indirect cause of COVID-19. So what do I mean by that? We had a patient a few weeks ago, and this patient comes to me. She, the patient is still experiencing rather ongoing significant symptoms from COVID-19, enough that the patient has not been able to go back to work. And that in of itself, right, work is, is greatly tied with our identity, our sense of purpose, And the inability to go back to work has resulted in this patient having significant depression come about and social isolation. So what I want to emphasize here is that our our colleagues, our friends, our family, our loved ones who have had post-COVID-19, they've recovered, yes, meaning they've survived, but many of them are still not back to the quality of life they've had, both physically and mentally, before the virus. And so the big emphasis I want to put here is while before the pandemic, we've all fought kind of the stigma and judgment around mental health to make sure that people were comfortable to discuss it, making sure people can go out and live their lives and seek the help that they need. We're going to need a lot more emphasis on that matter during the pandemic. So one of the reservations we've seen in the patients seeking this out is a sense of stigma and judgment. So we're trying to make them certain that their mood isn't one that they'll just potentially get over. It is one that is impacting them right now. And so for our patients, we make these referrals to psychology and psychiatry. We do in real time capture survey data that tells us how significant, how severe their depression and anxiety is and their social isolation, all very key variables. So to the community, what I'm hoping you can take away from this is if you've seen someone survive, if you know someone who's had COVID and survived regardless of how ill they were. If they don't have to be to the level of our imam colleague two weeks ago who talked about 
being on breath and breathing machines struggling for two months. I'm talking about even someone who had a mild case of COVID-19, mild meaning they stayed at home and, and were miserable, but wasn't life-threatening. Talk to them. Talk to them, check in on them, see how they're doing, make sure they open up and so forth. And if you get a sense of they're not, something's not right, they're off or they're not themselves, Talk to them. Just, just say, hey, I'm hoping you're getting the resources you need. If you ever need to talk to someone, let me know. If you feel like you need other help, let me send you some resources from Kimberly, from the COVID-19 community calls from Kimberly and Dr. Jean. So that's it. An emphasis on mental health. So with that said, with that said, now let's go to the star of the show, Kimberly. Joking. Kimberly is always the star of the show. But Kimberly Munson, do you mind introducing our colleague, Dr. Erica Johnson, and then I'm going to start off with one of the first questions before we get to yours in the community. Oh, thank goodness, because you're scaring me. I said, I'm not prepared. I don't have anything but jokes. <laughs> I, I can't talk about anything. <laughs> no worries, Kimberly. Over to you to introduce Dr. Johnson. Yeah, thank you. So, again, uh, Dr. Erica Johnson, um, who is um, uh, both uh, Dr. G and I know very well, um, amazing woman assistant professor of infectious disease and program director of our internal medicine residency program here at Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. So welcome, Dr. Johnson. Thank you so much for joining us. And hit uh, star six to um, unmute your line. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you it. for the prompt and thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. Um, well, Actually, before we go into conversation, um, would you mind just giving us a, a brief uh, background about some of the work that you do? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. So um, I have uh, been here at Johns Hopkins Bayview for uh, six years now. Um, I work in the Division of Infectious Diseases, and so a lot of um, the clinical work that I do is related to caring for patients with various infectious diseases both in the hospital and outside of the hospital. Um, certainly since the pandemic has started, uh, I've been able to care for patients with COVID um, in, in the hospital alongside other, many other physicians here. But the other big part of my job is related to training physicians who are doing their residency or their um, their, their post-medical school training in internal medicine. Um, and many of the graduates of the program will go on to be um, internists, and many will go on to subspecialize in things like, you know, pulmonary and critical care like Dr. G or like infectious diseases like myself and other things um, like that. But a big focus of our program has always been um, the role of the community-oriented physician and the role of physician as advocate. And so um, we always try to train our physicians through that particular lens um, as they're learning all of the, the, the medical aspects of their job as well. If I may add, Dr. Johnson, uh, what we hope every caller, every guest feels is uh, you're joining a family. And uh, while you share the professional one, I want to go one step further that I hope our listeners really enjoy hearing about. But you are born and raised. You are a Baltimore person from the beginning to the, to, to the current, right? You're I a am. Baltimore City individual, right? Do you want to share a bit about uh, growing up in Baltimore? Yeah, yeah. I um, uh, definitely am from Baltimore. Um, uh, grew up mostly on the west side. So I've lived in Ir Irvington initially, um, and then uh, we moved to Woodlawn just outside of the Beltway. Uh, I went to Western High School. I know that's important to all of us who grew up here in Baltimore. Um, though one of the great things about um, uh, my job is, is getting to uh, be a doctor in the community that, you know, I grew up in. Um, I left Baltimore for, for a bit of time for a career in the U.S. Army, and in that capacity as an ID doctor, you know, traveled all around the world. But um, the, the process of coming home and being able to help ensure that, you know, all of the, the wonderful things that happen at Hopkins and other institutions like Hopkins um, that translates into better outcomes for all of our communities and, and particularly the, the ones right here in, in Baltimore. So um, that's a huge aspect of why my, my, my job feels so meaningful to me and why I continue to do it every day. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Johnson. And I always like to say we have Baltimore somewhat covered. Uh, Dr. Johnson growing up on the west side. I grew up on the east side. So <laughs> you and I can uh, come together. And, and by all means, and I say this lovingly, even if you didn't tell us from Baltimore, it is hard to hide the accent. So just an <laughs> FYI. No, I, I have the same one. So don't, it's, it's said with love. Yes. Dr. Johnson, <laughs> my, 
My first question to you, and then we'll dive right in with Kimberly because I know we have a lot of community questions. My first question for you is, do you mind spending a minute or two just discussing? I, I don't think many people understand when you have to remodel a hospital during the pandemic, it, it's not, oh, let's grab the playbook, page 36, let's read through it. You had to be part of redesigning also a medical education initiative with our residents, our future doctors in training. Can you spend a minute or two just discussing what adaptations you had to do and how you think this will benefit the future doctors? Yeah, I think that the pandemic um, provided some uh, real-world experience that is unlike any other that we would usually get in training. Um, you know, I think that um, part of how we had to approach it was balancing the, our educational mission with also balancing our service to our patients. And one of the things I remember about March a year ago was uh, how the um, admissions to the hospital just sort of changed dramatically over, uh, it felt like over a few days, um, from patients being admitted with a variety of different, you know, diverse medical conditions to patients being admitted almost exclusively with you know, conditions related to uh, COVID-19 specifically. And, um, and and we were all learning at the same time, you know, that a year ago we didn't have nearly as much information about the disease as we do now. Um, my resident physicians uh, were a huge part of that, and I'm so proud of them. I think that they um, worked side by side with some of the doctors who whose job is not necessarily to work in the hospital all the time, um, and together, uh, um, the resident physicians were able to help train some of these other doctors um, who were redeployed to work in the hospital and some of the day-to-day -day clinical skills of hospital working um, in order to care for the patients. We also learned some things about how to create units who would have specific um, skills and expertise around just caring for patients with COVID. It allowed us to take um, cohort, if you will, or have some of the same types of patients with the same illness, COVID, in the same place and also have a team of providers who was used to all of the routines around putting on PPE, um, their personal protective equipment, and um, all of the different, and now all the new medications and treatments became available for COVID, um, were comfortable with using those um, in managing uh, patients with the illness. And so we were able to integrate some of the service need um, caring for patients with COVID into our educational mission of teaching residents how to respond um, to unexpected things and think critically and work collaboratively on teams to help improve health. Excellent. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Johnson. And I, I say this because, you know, I think the adaptation part uh, should continue to be emphasizing to our community because you know, it, it took a lot. And everyone's, you know, depending on their leadership position, it's a bit different, but it's all for this collective good of how to adapt in real time. And not just getting the physicians out there to battle COVID-19. What I thought was a humbling part, right? You know, when our interns and residents work with the attending, they're, they're trying to steal all that wisdom from him or her. This one was different, right? Mm -hmm. I remember telling a resident back in April last year when he asked me a question, and I said to him, I was like, you and I know as much about COVID-19 together in real time. There, there isn't anything separating us. You've managed as many cases as I have. It was it, it not, not so much a humbling experience, but just one, of, one that we probably don't experience enough in medicine where we're all at the same intellectual level with regards to a disease. Did you, did you find that as well, uh, Dr. Johnson, working with your colleagues, I with did. the residents? Yeah, yeah, we all knew the same thing, which was very little initially, <laughs> and, and so is just, a, you know, a fraction of what we ultimately are going to understand about this virus uh, in years to come. Um, but I also think for the residents that that was very empowering, empowering for them. I think that they finally felt that, um, you know, that, that spirit of, of a true educational community where we were all learning together. And I think it also gave them a lot of confidence to know that there were some specific things about um, working in the hospital that they could teach to some of the, you know, providers who mostly work, say, in the outpatient space who were now coming to help assist us on the inpatient side. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. Can I ask a quick uh, question? Oh, yes. Can can go ahead. We're, we're transitioning now to vaccines and mutations, so go for it, my friend. Oh, yeah. Okay, perfect. So before we transfer transition over to that. So um, many of the medical residents have um, 
uh, volunteered their time uh, for many of our talks in the community. And I was wondering if you could just explain to the audience what exactly do we mean by a residency program? Because I know they see their names, like when we say PG1, PG2. What exactly does that mean? Um, and, and what is their residency program? What does that mean to our community when they see that? Yes, great. So um, the residency program is the first level of training that um, individuals do after they graduate from medical school with their medical degree, their MD or their DO. Um, and so they'll choose to do residency training in a, a specialty. And the specialty that um, we're mostly talking about here right you know, today is the specialty of internal medicine or doctors for adults. Um, and so the length of training depends on the specialty. You know, surgery training is longer, for example. But um, internal medicine training is three years across the nation. Um, and uh, we sometimes mark the year of training uh, by the letter, the number one, two, or three. So we'll use the term postgraduate year of training one or PGY1. PGY2, and then PGY3. The PGY3s are in their final or third year of training or getting ready to graduate, um, at which point they will then practice, or they may choose additional training. And we call that additional training um, fellowship training. And those are for subspecialties, like pulmonary and infectious diseases and cardiology. Um, and so, um, but, the, but the resident physicians, the physicians in residency are, are, are doctors. They're full doctors. They're just getting that additional expertise in the specialty. We use intern to mean the first year of training. And so sometimes we'll use, but, but we'll use the term resident sometimes for all three years of training. So sometimes that, chain, that term gets used interchangeably. Um, an intern is a resident, but an intern specifically is in that first year. And that's, a, that's true for all residency programs. Thank you so much for that clarification. I appreciate that. And thank you so much. You have such great interns, residents, second year and third year. They're all amazing. And I really appreciate all the time that they give to our community and helping us with the talks. And they appreciate the opportunity to do it. <laughs> so with, with, with that said, let's see if we can keep some of this enthusiasm going. And, and I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, babies where I trained. The reason why I do what I do is because of baby and leadership like you, Dr. Johnson. So. You are molding the next generation of doctors greatly. Now, let's ask a little bit more ID-specific questions. So last week, we had Dr. Zenelman on, and Johnson & Johnson, I think, was being reviewed in real time. Actually, we heard Dr. Zenelman's TV in the background as there was the FDA hearing. Mm -hmm. With that approved, can you share with us, uh, from your standpoint, your is there, hopefully there is enthusiasm as we're hearing from others. Tell us what you, your thoughts are with this vaccine and how it could be a potential aid into this pandemic. Yeah, I think that this um, is uh, the, the, one of the biggest game changers in, um, after you know, a year of going through this. And honestly, I, I think all the vaccines have the potential to be real game changers. But um, I think the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in particular um, has um, some real potential just because of a couple features of it that make it different than the um, other two vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer. I want to make sure that the, um, that I, the message isn't lost that any of the three vaccines um, is effective. Uh, any of the three vaccines um, are, um, you know, vaccines that are safe and will work, and uh, whichever of the three <laughs> is the first one offered to you, I think is the one that you should get. Um, and uh, I think that the things, though, about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that um, may be particularly helpful is, is scale. Um, this is a one-dose vaccine. The Moderna and Pfizer vaccines both require two doses. Um, in all of the studies related to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, um, the effect of the vaccine seemed to happen about two weeks after the dose. And so that's basically the same as the flu vaccine, where the effect happens about two weeks after the dose. And only one dose is required. And so that means, you know, you can, you can consider yourself protected, um, you know, in a shorter period of time when compared with the um, Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, which both require two doses. Um, and, and in which the period of being uh, most effective is two weeks after the second dose. And since the doses are spaced apart, that means for um, the Moderna vaccine, you're looking at, um, you know, six weeks after your first dose of it being most effective, and Pfizer vaccine, um, five weeks after the first dose of being most effective. 
And so by and, and then the other thing is the Johnson and Johnson vaccine doesn't require um, doesn't have the uh, same requirements related to ultra cold storage um, or freezing uh, that the um, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines have respectively. And so the ability to make this vaccine very quickly, distribute it widely, and have people vaccinated with a single dose and have the effect, the greatest effect of the vaccine happen as soon as two weeks after, I think means that we'll be able to really rapidly scale up the ability to, um, you know, in increase the proportions of people throughout the United States that are vaccinated effectively, um, which is how we're going to help control some of the um, the spread of uh, the disease, certainly, and, and particularly the spread of variants. Excellent. And uh, Dr. Johnson, talking about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, that just occurred to me, by the way. So sorry if that's <laughs> not, not to make a, well, kind of a, a, fun, a pun of it. But um, with this, is there any other vaccine that you're excited about coming out in the near future, or do you think this is all we'll have moving forward? So um, I, I think definitely we'll be seeing other vaccines come onto the market. And, um, uh, you know, one of the other vaccines that is talked about a lot and that is in use just in other countries is the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, and uh, this vaccine is, it, you can probably think of it as most similar to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Um, both of those vaccines are based on a vector of a different virus, an adenovirus. It's sort of a, a common virus that we see and that many of us have probably had causes symptoms that are kind of similar to common cold. Um, the AstraZeneca vaccine uses a version of this virus that um, uh, infects chimpanzees. Um, uh, and um, But in both cases with AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, the, the virus vector that they use is just a way to get the um, vaccine information inside the cell. Um, the adenovirus is um, not able to replicate itself. It's not live virus. It's not able to cause disease. And I think that's a really important message for all of the vaccines that are currently available in the U.S. and in other places and, um, and the ones that are being, that are probably the furthest along in investigation. Um, these are not viruses that can cause um, disease. You know, infectious diseases. Um, they and and it makes them safe for people with even a, you know variety of different conditions, including chronic conditions, including conditions that impact the immune system. Um, the reason that these vaccines are all very safe for ev for everyone um, from everything that we have in terms of data so far is that these um, vaccines don't have any live virus material at all whether related to coronavirus or rather related to the vector that um, the vaccine uses. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. My, my next question is then, so we hear a lot about mutations. And can you give us, a, a, from an infectious disease point of view, how the vaccine can help us slow, if not stop, mutations overall? Yeah, so um, many viruses uh, mutate. That's um, normal. Some mutate at faster rates than others. For example, the influenza virus mutates quite regularly. Um, corona, coronavirus also mutates um, in a way that's more that's slower than uh, influenza virus, just to use a common virus as an example. Um, but what's happened with this coronavirus, um, while these mutations are expected, when we think about the millions of people worldwide that have been infected with this virus in a relatively short period of time, it's given more opportunities for the virus to do what it does naturally anyway, which is change. And, um, and, and so there are some particular variants or mutants of the virus that have emerged that we are following or, or tracking. Um, and, um, you know, some of these variants uh, seem to make the virus more easy to transmit to other people um, or even more um, likely to cause more severe disease relative to other variants. And so the reason that vaccines can be really helpful in, how, in changing this is that the more people that we can vaccinate as quickly as possible all around the world, but particularly in the communities where we live right here, the less opportunity there is for virus to spread from person to person and to change um, in that process. And so that's why 
um, I think it's so important that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in particular um, has come onto the market right now. Um, it's coming at a time where if we can um, more effectively scale up vaccination to get many, many people vaccinated over the next couple of weeks, and those people will, be, will have protection within two weeks of their vaccination, that will naturally slow the rate of transmission of viruses and virus variants, and that will help us also control the ability of the virus to um, make new variants as it replicates. But we have to, you know, ideally we, we would act fast on this. And so um, that's why I think the, it's so important to, um, you know, spread the message about how um, safe and effective all of the vaccines are um, and, um, you know, how important it is for people to get their questions answered about the vaccine so they feel as safe about it as possible. Uh, but I have been uh, talking to as many of my family and friends and communities as I can about um, vaccine and, and how I recommend it and, and why I recommend it, um, and also have been vaccinated uh, as well as a healthcare worker taking for patients with COVID. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. And, and, and I, uh, you, you, you clinically role model well and you community engage role model well. Um, so I, I, it's a true, true testimony of having, in my belief, a homegrown Baltimore physician uh, leading a, an, an important um, effort but also leading one of the older um, residencies here in Baltimore. So thank you for that, uh, Dr. Johnson. Uh, my, my next question, I think after this one, I'm going to turn it over to Kimberly because I'm getting dinged by her. She's got plenty of community questions coming in, so we'll, we'll turn it in a second. But my last question, any insight right now? So I, I know when the vaccine technology started for research, I imagine they, they recognized there was going to be likely some mutations in the future. Do we know any insight right now into current research around the vaccines and some of the mutations that exist, especially in other countries? Do we have any insight into efficacy around that? Yes, we do. Um, and um, well, I think particularly with this most recent vaccine that's come into the market, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it was um, tested in uh, a number of different countries, including in South Africa, where um, one of the circulating variants um, uh, that has been associated with more severe disease was um, circulating with more prevalence um, at a higher rate than uh, was circulating in uh, the U.S., for example. And so, you know, we've been able to look at the way that vaccine in particular performed, um, and it performed at a lower rate of, of effectiveness um, in South Africa. Um, it, it performed at a rate of about 50% efficacy um, compared with the way that it performed in the United States where it had um, where it's about 72 percent effective. Um, I think the message though is that the vaccine in all regions was highly effective against severe disease um, and, um, and most effective against specifically hospitalization and death. And in fact with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine there were essentially no um, deaths from COVID um, in the setting of that, that vaccine being studied. And so, you know, while it's important to think about the role of vaccines in preventing um, any disease, any symptoms from COVID, the real thing that we're hoping to do, I think, in terms of keeping our people safe and being able to return to the way things looked before COVID, before March of 2020, is preventing hospitalizations and preventing deaths. And if we have three, three vaccines that clearly do that, prevent hospitalizations and prevent deaths, um, we will be able to manage some of the milder symptoms that come with COVID. You know, that I think we'll get to a place where, you know, these milder symptoms will start to feel like a cold, you know, having a regular cold and, um, and not carry with it the weight of the potential for um, being in the hospital um, and if and or dying, um, and even if surviving the hospitalization, having the long sort of course of um, extended symptoms after COVID that uh, that you, Dr. J, were talking about that you see in that special clinic. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. So over to you, Kimberly. I know we have some community calls or questions. Sorry about that. Uh, thank you, Dr. G, and thank you, Dr. Johnson. Um, this information that you're sharing is uh, very helpful, and I know that uh, 
I appreciate it, and everyone on the call, I'm sure, appreciates it as well. So thank you for that. And we did receive a number of questions during the week. I wanted to thank everyone for submitting your questions, and I appreciate your um, listening and, and trying to keep informed. So the first question is, are there any reports of folks returning to their previous health status post-COVID-19? So yes, and that, um, and in fact, that is the most common story. The majority of people who have COVID um, will have, you know, milder or more moderate symptoms that actually don't require coming to the hospital at all. Um, and many of those patients will recover without any effects that they're aware of. They'll go back to life as normal. Um, but unfortunately, there is a subset of patients who will continue to have chronic symptoms that linger. And um, for people who were otherwise completely healthy before getting the virus, who then have symptoms that, um, you know, maybe are not very severe, but um, can still be very disabling and very disruptive, you know, difficulties with sleep or with um, difficulties with memory that make it hard to continue to do the work that they were used to doing. Um, you know, pains in, 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 in joints that maybe make it hard to kind of participate in some activities they used to participate in. Um, these, these symptoms can, can be really um, disruptive for people that, that unfortunately are impacted by them, this sort of long COVID syndrome. And so, um, so yes, the majority of people will recover without anything at all, but um, the importance, I think, of controlling the transmission is to is that we don't know who's going to develop these chronic sort of persistent symptoms even after they've cleared the infection. Thank you. Um, so the next question, so you know, we're still encouraging folks to get their flu vaccine, the pneumonia vaccine, and shingles vaccine if applicable. How long should you wait after receiving these vaccines before getting the COVID-19 vaccine? So for all of those common vaccines that, um, that, that you mentioned, um, the body is so good at responding to different, um, you know, different things all at the same time in terms of the immune system being able to respond um, that as soon as it is possible for you to get a COVID vaccine, you should get it. Um, the, um, I think, you know, one of the, the, the reasons for perhaps separating the um, COVID vaccine from maybe other vaccines might be that uh, there are side effects that some people experience with the COVID vaccine and they may want to be able to distinguish side effects from the vaccine from other, other things. And that might be one reason that some people choose to separate them. But I would say that for right now, based on what's going on in our community, um, the highest priority really should be the COVID vaccine. Um, and um, unless you have just had COVID within three months or less, um, if you are offered the opportunity to get COVID vaccine and are comfortable with doing that, um, that, that I would suggest be the highest priority. Um, if around the same time you are also able to get something like your seasonal flu vaccine um, or you have another vaccine that's indicated based on condition, um, it's, it's okay to do those things as well. You don't, might just want to check with your doctor just to make sure because I, I just didn't want to broadly generalize about all vaccines, but um, best to check with, with your individual doctor just to make sure that you're timing everything out appropriately. Perfect. Thank you. So um, this question comes up very often, and um, so basically, um, so how safe is it for unvaccinated families to be in the same house or to like to plan a vacation together, particularly if, um, for example, say the, the parents are vaccinated but the child is not, or um, the grandparents are vaccinated but again the child is not. Um, and I know Dr. Zettelman kind of addressed this the last week, but, you know, and he kind of echoed what Dr. Felshi said, you know, and again, kind of how safe is it to, to hug each other, to do some of the things that we were so used to doing um, if we haven't all been vaccinated um, within the same family? Right. So for families that, um, you know, are within the same household and, um, you know, are, have continued to kind of live within the same household, 
they're, um, they probably don't need to do anything differently than they've already been doing this whole time. You know, that is, um, you know, that household unit, you kind of agree <laughs> to that everyone in the unit is going to probably conduct themselves in a certain way, and you just have to sort of, you know, trust that, um, trust that that's true. Um, and because of the relationship that's there, you know, everyone sort of has a stake in keeping the household safe. Um, I think that even even if there are different members who are vaccinated within that household and, and, and members who are not, and so I'd say you could probably just continue doing things as you were in that situation. In a situation where you're combining you know, two or more households who maybe are still within the same family or close friend unit, but don't but don't don't live together. Um, and uh, and not everyone um, amongst those people will be vaccinated. Um, I think it's still you know really important to you know recognize that there still is in that situation the risk of transmission of disease between the people who aren't vaccinated, and um, and and that you know for those who maybe are vaccinated um, because the vaccines aren't. 100% effective, there's still the possibility for milder disease. Um, and so in that situation, I think that it would be really important for people to still recognize that there is some risk uh, and how important the public health measures of, um, of masking, of washing our hands, um, and of physically distan distancing and, and avoiding you know, large gatherings or avoiding, avoiding situations, including family, group family situations outside of a household um, of coming together. So I guess my, the bottom line of my message is we're not quite there yet with a partially vaccinated community. Um, and we're not quite there yet with um, a level of safety with partially vaccinated households sort of coming together, even in small groups. But we are so close. And, um, you know, I, I, my, my long view, I think, is, um, you know, that probably by the end of the year, things will, the end of this calendar year, things will start to look a little bit more normal, particularly with different households being able to come together safely, um, people within house or amongst different households being able to hug and, and greet each other in the ways that we used to before, um, but we're just not quite there yet until everyone is, is vaccinated who wants to be vaccinated. So, you know, I think I know the answer to this question. So, you know, along the same lines, um, the concern is about planning summer vacations, particularly if they haven't been vaccinated. What are your thoughts about them flying or planning on going on vacation? Yeah, I think that... Um, you know, that's, it's still, you know, something that we should take a lot of, you know, extreme caution with in, in thinking out and planning and um, balancing out what the level of risk is um, compared with, you know, what the, the, the benefit is of the situation. Um, there are going to continue to be risks of being exposed to the virus and getting sick with the virus. Um, for people that are not vaccinated, um, as long as there are also other people in the community that are not vaccinated. Um, you know, ideally, we would get to a place where our, our rates of vaccination here in the, in the U.S. broadly were 70% or higher um, before I think we start to see the dramatic, dramatic drops in rates of transmission that would make it more safe for um, us to kind of re-enter and do some of the same activities that we were doing before the pandemic started. Um, I don't think, you know, planning for vacations right now is in the summer is off the table because I, I think that with the scale up of vaccination, it's very possible. And, and also with, um, you know, President Biden's message last week, earlier this week, rather, I think it's very possible that by the time summer rolls around that every adult who, um, wants to be vaccinated will have had the opportunity by then to be vaccinated. And I think that, you know, because we've seen that disease in children tends to be um, much less severe and much less, less likely to result in a hospitalization or a death compared with disease in adults, um, as long as families were taking the same sorts of precautions with respect to distancing and masking as much as possible while in transit. Um, 
you could create a situation, I think, that would be safe. You just have to, you know, understand the risks associated with that. But until we get to a place where every adult in the U.S. who wants to be vaccinated can be vaccinated, I, I, I think it's hard to say that um, travel, except when necessary, um, is, uh, is, is going to be completely safe. I think we're just not quite there yet. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. And as a, a follow-up to that, um, you know, many articles recently have stated that adults could be fully vaccinated by May. Do you think that's realistic? I, I do. I think that um, because of some of the um, uh, industry government partnerships um, around uh, production and distribution of vaccine um, and the addition of this third option um, in the U.S. now, uh, I, I do feel more confident that we might be able to reach that target by May. And I think that that it's hugely important um, if we're thinking about, um, you know, things related to the last question about, you know, what does travel look like in the summer? What does, um, you know, what does it look like in the fall with uh, schools? Um, you know, what do the end of the year sort of traditional family celebrations look like? I think that if, if we want those things to happen, uh, it's really important that as many of us get vaccinated as quickly as possible. And I think it's now, I'm hopeful that, that, that may target date that's been reported is um, is achievable. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. Um, so um, we're going to, um, before we wrap up with the uh, closing prayer, Dr. Johnson and Dr. G, do you want to make any uh, final comments as we wrap up the call? Well, let me say this, and I, I'm going to set up Dr. Johnson for her closing comments. Dr. Johnson, you've been amazing today, coming in, sharing us, not only you know, joining our family on these community calls by sharing personally, you know, being a homegrown uh, individual who is now a physician caring for the community, but also continuing to provide reassurance from the infectious disease world that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And, and we recognize it is hard to come up with exact estimates. Uh, science got us here because of vaccines, for instance, but it's still a matter of distribution and so forth. So thank you for sharing your wisdom, your, your enthusiasm. I'm excited. I'm feeling like I can start breathing a sigh of relief to some extent. So with that said, Dr. Johnson, any last closing comments to our community, recognizing that we have a way out of this? What should we continue emphasizing until that has been well distributed? Yes, I think that um, in, until everyone is able to get their vaccine and probably even beyond that, for, for months beyond, I think it's just um, the most important things that we can continue to do for each other is uh, wear our masks, wash our hands, um, avoid, avoid large gatherings, and, um, you know, continue, continue to physically distance. So uh, I hope that we all continue that even after vaccine. Um, but, but vaccines are going to be the fastest way for us to get out of this, for sure. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. I, I'm hoping, and uh, the listeners have heard this before, so I apologize if it offends anyone. I'm just hoping the handshake goes out of a, goes, goes out for the path. So that's the one I'm looking forward to. <laughs> but with that said, on that comical note, Dr. Johnson, you've been uh, amazing. You've been a blessing to have your voice here today. And your voice, I know, is inspiring the voices of all, all of our listeners. So thank you so much. And with that said, Kimberly, over to you. Thank you again, Dr. G and Dr. Johnson. This was a fantastic call. I appreciate you both. Um, and, and thank you for sharing all that um, wonderful information with our community. Before I turn the call over to Reverend Teague, please join us again for our next COVID-19 Community Partners Call, Friday, March the 12th at 11 a.m., our guest speaker will be Dr. Er, Crystal Watson, Assistant Professor, Department of Environmental Health and Engineering, to discuss the importance of contact tracing now that we have the vaccines available. And now for those who would like to stay on the call, Reverend Teague will offer closing thoughts and a prayer. Reverend Teague. Hi, thank you, Kimberly, and thank you, Dr. G and Dr. Johnson. Uh, wonderful information today. It's always great to be on the calls. Um, you can hear me okay, right, Kimberly? Yes, we can. Thank you. So Maryland will commemorate the one-year anniversary of the, the state's first confirmed case of COVID-19 today, March 5th. Can you believe it's been a year already? 
On March 12th, Johns Hopkins Hospital had its first COVID-19 positive patient admitted. We've learned a lot through this year and through this suffering as we've experienced this pandemic. And now we enter into year two with more knowledge, hope, and even light for the end of the tunnel. So for this reflection today and for our prayer, I wanted to be especially mindful of this anniversary. So let us pray. Dear God of many names and of no name, we come together today with so many emotions and thoughts about the one-year anniversary of the COVID-19 pandemic. We are grateful for those who have cared for us during this time, countless care providers, frontline and behind the scenes, who bravely every day came to the hospital, donned the protective equipment, walked the halls, confronted the illness, and offered solace to patients who were often alone, without family, without support. We are grateful for those who've recovered, for whom the virus visited their home or family and thankfully moved away without the ultimate loss of life. Health is so precious, we will not take it for granted again. We remember those we've lost, those who died and those who still suffer from the disease. We remember every broken heart, every missed memory, every tear. The magnitude of the loss is unending. We recognize the injustice that the pandemic has brought to light. We are renewed in our commitment to speak truth to power, to righting inequities, not to give up until every soul is treated with respect and dignity. We seek comfort, inspiration, and courage to move forward. We continue this journey through the valley of the shadow of death, hoping for healing, hoping for community, and hoping for restoration. As we gather on this call today, let us remember that the strength we bring is because we are not alone. Whatever we have endured or have yet to face, there is a hand to hold, a voice to soothe, a companion for this walk. May we take from this year of COVID-19 lessons learned, stories that uplifted us, and meaning that we discovered. And may we never forget those who gave of themselves in service. May the memories of those we have lost be of comfort to us. And may our gratitude for even the smallest of graces be at the forefront. Amen. Thank you, Reverend Teague, and thank you, everyone, for listening today. Have a great weekend. Stay safe and be well. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible by the Johns Hopkins Bayview Healthy Community Partnership, its Department of Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Medicine for the Greater Good, and the Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research.